Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 43. Let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we know that ultimately our well-being comes from drawing near to you, from experiencing your truth and grace, which you have made possible for us through the gift of your son, Jesus, through his death for us on the cross and his resurrection unto new life. So we're looking to you this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher. You would cause our hearts and our minds to be attentive to the things that you would want to say to us. We're your children. We're looking to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So the series, um, if you're just jumping in, we've entitled Mightier Than I because in the gospel according to Mark, it's the second of the four gospels, um, we're introduced to Jesus as the one who is mightier than I, John the baptizer. He was the prophet who was supposed to foretell the coming of the Messiah, the one who was to prepare the way of the Lord. And when Jesus comes on the scene, John points to Jesus and he says, behold, the one who is mightier than I. So at the very outset, Mark is introducing Jesus as a mighty king, a king who is coming to establish his kingdom and overthrow overthrow the current rule of a different kingdom, a dark kingdom. Many during that time would have naturally assumed that Jesus had come to overthrow the Roman kingdom. But as we'll soon find out, he had much bigger plans than that. But he is the mightier one. He is King Jesus who has come to establish his good rule and authority. Um, And that's what we've been looking at. Let's go to the next slide, please. So here's the outline of the portion of scripture we're going to be looking at today. If you'd like taking notes, you can jot these down. A pressing prayer request, reaching through the crowd, a costly detour, the birth of hope, and the reality of this life. How's that sound? See how far we get. Um, This morning, instead of reading through the entire passage or story, uh, we're going to break it into parts, because I think that'll be helpful for us. Um, So starting in verse 21, let's read the first few verses here. There we go, it's up there. And when Jesus had crossed again, In the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And we'll pause there. This is the pressing prayer request. Have you ever prayed? This, this sounds very much like a prayer that I've certainly prayed more than once in my life. Jesus, I'm in a desperate situation. Please come. Please come and address this situation. I've prayed in earnest, and I have implored my king. This is a pressing prayer request. Now, I think it's helpful because you may have noticed we've actually just skipped Um, a significant portion of chapter 4. So if anyone's like, what happened in chapter 4? 
I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> we got a schedule. There's a couple of things that happened leading up to this moment that are really important for the sake of context. Now, we just read that Jesus has just come back from the other side, meaning he's at the Sea of Galilee. He's crossed over. Now he's come back. Now, if you recall, if you've, if you've ever read the book of Mark, um, what he's just done is he's left the crowd. He's told his disciples to come with him because they need to cross the Sea of Galilee and get to the other side to do, not, to do what God, Jesus, only knows. So his disciples follow him, and they all get in the boat. And what happens? A storm erupts. A mighty windstorm arises. And his disciples, who are mostly fishermen, or at least a few of them are fishermen, they panic. They are afraid for their life. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's asleep on the boat. Classic Jesus. And so his disciples go to him, terrified that they're going to die. And they wake him up, and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still not believe? And Jesus speaks to the wind of the storm, and he says, be still. And a great calm came over the water. This is Jesus flexing his authority over creation itself. The mighty one is amping it up. They finally get across the sea, and they get to the other side, and who's waiting for them? A man who's been living among the tombs for years, it would seem, and he is demon-possessed. In fact, he is so, so demon-possessed that the, the villagers, the town that he's from, couldn't even keep him chained up. So they tried to, uh, to detain him. They tried to lock him up. They tried to imprison him, but because he was so under the influence of Satan, they couldn't keep him. There's a whole sermon in that when, when there's, you consider the different kinds of chains that we can get bound up in. There was no human chain that could keep this man. Jesus arrives, and this demon-possessed man runs to him. And like normal, the demons recognize who Jesus is, and they cry out, Jesus Son of the Most High God, have mercy on us. And they implored him to send them, not out of the region, but just someplace within the region. So he sends them into these, uh, apparently there was this like, massive uh, herd, flock, a pig. What do you call a flock of pig? Herd. <laughs> 2,000. 2,000. 2,000 swine. When asked by Jesus, when Jesus asks the, the demons that are inhabiting this poor, poor man, their name, and he says, we are legion for we are many. Legions, of course, is a, is a Roman sort of military term, meaning an army of a thousand. This man was filled with an army of demons. And with a word, Jesus commands them to leave. And they come out. Once again, the mighty one is displaying his authority. Of course, the man begs to go with Jesus. Jesus is like, no, no, no. Like, I want you to go back home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And he goes back, and he goes to the public meeting space, and he begins to pro proclaim to everyone what Jesus, the Lord, had done for him. 
And they get back on the boat, they cross back over, and this is where the passage begins. Now, understand, this is Jesus the Mighty One who once again is demonstrating that he is, in fact, the mighty king who has come to establish his good rule and authority. He has authority over an army of demons. He has authority over creation itself. And along comes Jairus, a man with a daughter who is at the point of death. He's desperate. He's earnest. He implores Jesus, and he says, come, please, that you may lay your hands on my daughter so that she may be made well and live. Now, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, one would think is that he would just go to Jairus' house, bam, sorted, healed. That's not what happens. The story takes a turn. Suddenly, a woman emerges from the crowd. Let's keep going. So there's that. 25, verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. It's kind of bizarre. Verse 28, for she said, presumably to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Let's keep going. Next slide, please. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, uh, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's pause there. The woman with the discharge of blood. Um, now, some of you probably have heard some sort of teaching on this, or maybe you've Googled it, but in that culture, under that sort of, uh, t- during that time, the, the Jewish law clearly stated, this is Leviticus 15, that a woman during her time of menstrual flow would, been, would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Sure. Um, no. um, now, some of you may hear that and think, oh, that's, that's cruel and archaic, and why? Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Now, there's, you could argue there's certain hygienic reasons and, and you know, perhaps some wisdom behind why during this ancient time that might be a good thing for you know, a woman to um, make sure that she's, I don't know, I'm not a woman. I need to be very, very careful now. Um, so how about I just say nothing about that? 
Um, so according to Leviticus 15, she would have been considered unclean, untouchable. For at least a week, she would have had to have removed herself from any contact with anyone. Otherwise, she would have defiled them as well. Anything that she would have touched or anyone she might have touched would have also been considered unclean. And so it makes sense why when Jesus perceives that someone has touched him and powers come out of him, he wants to know who did it, although I would strongly argue Jesus knew exactly who did it, but he says, who touched me? And the woman's now terrified. She's like, oh my goodness, he's going to know. Me, the unclean woman, for 12 years, she's been unclean. 12 years, she's been considered untouchable, an outcast, to be removed, not even allowed to participate in the ceremonies, the traditions. Arguably, she wouldn't have even been allowed in the synagogue. That is assuming people knew. Now here you kind of, you're left wondering, did people know? If they did know, then she absolutely would have been an outcast. If people didn't know, she would have just been stuck living in fear and shame, terrified that someone might find out. Either way, 12 years of fear and shame. Now Jesus, in the middle of this big crowd, very public moment, saying, who touched me? And she comes forward shaking with fear. And she tells Jesus the whole truth. I love that. He's like, okay, here's the truth. 12 years I've been hiding. 12 years I've been living in shame. 12 years I've not been touched. So there it is. I did it. Jesus healed her. Jesus healed her, but he went even further. He went even further. He created a bit of a public moment so that everyone would know that this woman is now clean. She's been restored. Jesus not only healed her physical situation, he gave her her dignity back in a very public way. She restored, he restored her, her sense of worth. And isn't it something, Jesus, oh goodness, there's so much that could be said. Technically, technically, the onlookers would have assumed that in that moment, because the unclean woman had touched the garment of Rabbi Jesus, he had become unclean. According to the law, he would have been defiled. But instead, Jesus, the mighty one, did a reverse move and cleansed the woman who for 12 years had been written off as untouchable. This is the mighty one at work in the crowd. What do you suppose Jairus is doing right now? Frightened? Fretting? Yeah, fretting. Maybe thinking, <clears throat> synagogue ruler here, can we, can we get on with it? Okay, woman, unclean woman at that. You know, again, speculation, so bear with me, but I'm, I'm inclined to think that this synagogue ruler may very well have been one of the rulers of the synagogue, one of the men 
who knew exactly who this woman was and had probably banned her from synagogue worship for 12 years. And now we're stopping because this woman decided to reach out in the crowd and touch the hem of Jesus. Jesus, let's get the show on the road. Priority. Mm -mm. It would seem Jesus has has a different perspective on how this kingdom he's inaugurating is to work out. So she's healed and her dignity is restored as well. Let's go a couple more verses. Verse 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. I have a daughter. You guys, if you know me, you know I love, I adore my little girl. Absolutely adore. She's seven years old, and we've got this little like father-daughter crush going on. I, I just love her to death. It's the weirdest thing. Even if you don't have a daughter, it just put yourself there for a moment. Jairus, your daughter is dead. There is no darker moment. There is no darker moment than the news when a father finds out that his daughter is dead. And what does Jesus say? Don't fear, just believe. Isn't it interesting how he contrasts fear and faith? He doesn't say, don't be in unbelief, only believe. He says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, trust me says something about the nature of faith. It says something about the nature of fear. Don't believe what you're feeling right now. This overwhelming emotion of anxiety that you're feeling right now, that I can't even imagine. If someone actually told me, you prayed, but Jesus got detoured, he got a little caught up, healing someone else, so sorry to tell you, but your daughter is dead now. I can remember one time, I think I may have told this story before, but my little boy Isaac was like two or something. We were wrestling on the bed, and I promise you it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. I thought I broke my kid's neck. We were like rolling around, I'm tossing him, and this and that, and he did like this little backward thing, and I knocked the wind out of him. I thought I had broken his neck. You don't ever, ever, ever want that feeling as a human being in this life. Your daughter's dead, but don't believe the lie that there's no hope left. Don't, 
Don't allow the emotion of fear that you're feeling now to overwhelm you. Trust me. Trust me. What would you do in that moment? (laughs) Pray harder. Pray in tongues. Jesus, come now. Fear is believing that God can't or won't come through for me. It's not a matter of unbelief versus belief. It's a matter of don't believe the lie now in this moment. Believe that I am able and willing to bring life in this moment. Let's keep going. We're getting to the the climax. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They're now at Jairus' house. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when they had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. Now notice the detail. Everything's slowing down right now. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, it's Aramaic, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is Jesus' first um, time raising someone from the dead. He has just demonstrated his authority even over death itself. But that's not all he's done. You gotta get the detail here. Now we're reading the gospel according to Mark, which is the shortest of all the gospels. Not a word is wasted in this little biography, this ancient sort of biography of Jesus. 12 years old. 12 years old. How ironic. Jesus has just healed a woman who's been living in fear and shame for 12 years. On the day that that woman realized or the year she realized that she had a problem, uh, a disease, a a bodily uh, situation that would cause her society, her family, everyone around her to view her as a social pariah, untouchable. The day that this woman began to live in fear and shame is the day that this little girl came into the world. The day that this woman went into hiding was the day that Jairus and his family was celebrating the gift of new life. And now 12 years later, the same day 
that the woman was healed was the day that this little girl died. Coincidence? No, I think Mark's definitely trying to tell us something. Trying to tell us something about hope and the reality of this life. In this life, your day of rejoicing may be the day of mourning for another. Your day of freedom may be a day of overwhelming fear for another. Your day of healing may be a day of living hell for someone down the road. Your day of new life may be the beginning of shame and rejection for another. Your day of praise may be the day of pain for another. Your day of healing may be a day of horror for someone else. What are the implications? What, what, what is it about this mighty king who has the power to heal and even to bring a little girl back to life? What is it about the timing of this moment and this, this interruption and this detour and, and, and one woman being set free after 12 years and yet another little girl dying. And, and I have to point out the fact that I think that the real fear wasn't the little girl because we don't know anything about her other than that she died and she was 12. But the father, Jairus, and presumably the mother, they were the ones who were feeling the anguish, the overwhelming temptation to give up all hope and to become overcome with the fear that they've just lost their little girl. What is it about the intersection of these two lives, these two experiences happening in parallel and intersecting and Jesus showing up right in the midst of it all that is meant to help us understand what it looks like to follow Jesus and to cry out to him and to experience healing and new life and, and how that's really complicated and how it would seem like our lives are, are intertwined and we're not just all individually getting our Jesus fix our little compartmentalized prayers or needs met in this life, but it's much, much more complicated than that. And Jesus is in the midst of it all. What are the implications of that? Number one, in the church, we need room for those who are mourning loss and dealing with shame as well as room for those who are rejoicing in the wake of healing and new life. Let me, let me ask you a really, really practical question. Have you, ever, have you ever come to church, maybe this church, maybe some other church experience, um, when you were really feeling like just not into it? And you thought, like, I'm actually feeling depressed. I'm, I, I did some stuff that I'm really ashamed of last night. And my God, if anyone knew... I just, I'm sure fire would come down or just something. And like, I really don't want to be here because I know everyone's going to be smiling and, and I'm going to walk up those stairs and someone's going to want to shake my hand and it's going to, I'm going to feel this subtle but very real pressure to like act like I have it together. And no one would ever, ever like say that. 
or deliberately try to do that, but that's, have you ever experienced that? And yet, a lot of us, or arguably all of us at other points come to church, it's like, dude, Jesus is good, my life is great, he's faithful, his grace is more than enough, and I just want to, I want to sing songs to Jesus, I want to learn more about him, I want to find someone I can pray for, I want to smile, and you're just like, dude, let's, let's have a party, let's rejoice, and somehow we really struggle to kind of create room for both of those worlds to mingle. We all want to be ourselves, and we talk about we want to be the kind of church where anyone, no matter how you're feeling, where you're coming from, what you believe, don't believe, can come and experience Jesus according to his truth. That's God's word. According to God's grace, that is his spirit introducing to us to the person of truth, that is Jesus. And yet we come sometimes broken, terrified, full of shame, and others of us, look, we just want to rejoice. How do we create the kind of community where both of those feelings, both of those experiences can coexist? I don't really know, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, I'm putting the question out there, hoping that maybe just asking the question will, will help us, at least in some way pointing out the fact that we need to be the kind of community that can practice mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice, realizing that there's something much more communal going on here than our typical sort of individual Western experience. That when we come into a community like this, it's like that crowd gathering around Jesus. On the one hand, you have a woman who's being set Free after 12 years of pain, loss, and shame. In another moment, you have a father who's just about to experience probably the greatest pain he will ever experience in this life. And Jesus is right in the middle of it all. I dream about being that kind of church community where there's room for the broken the hurting, those who need to lament, and those who just want to rejoice because in this season, they're just overwhelmed with the goodness, the blessings of God. That, to me, sounds a bit like like real life, like real life, where there's a degree of authenticity and And this is my second point. And an even greater degree of hope. Whether you're at the tail end of your 12 years or you're just getting started, there is one thing we all need more of in this life, and that is hope. That's the bottom line. Hope. Because the girl did come back to life. Because Jesus does rule even over death itself. He is the author of life. We need hope. Let me read this to you in closing. Can I invite uh, the band to come up, please?
I need you to remind me that despite loss, disappointment, the shame, the feeling of disillusionment, the detours, the reality of my circumstances, I need you to remind me that there is still hope in this life. Because there is one who is mightier than my situation, mightier than my painfully limited perspective, because Jesus is still healing people today. He's alive, and by his spirit, he is still moving among us. He is within arm's reach. So don't give in to fear. Trust him and have hope today. Whether you are rejoicing because you've received freedom today, because you've experienced some kind of healing or breakthrough today, because that prayer that you've been praying for, I don't know, 12 years has finally been answered by Jesus today, or if you're like, I have been hurting for longer than I can actually remember. Hold on, let me do the math. Maybe it has been 12 years. Maybe it's been longer. Whatever end of the spectrum you might be on, we all need to be reminded. We all need to remind each other that Jesus is alive, that hope is real. And no matter how desperate, no matter how impossible the world might look out there, and let's admit, I mean, it's, it's a bit crazy these days. I reckon it was pretty crazy back then as well. No matter what it looks like, there is hope. There is hope. And I believe that Jesus is saying to some of us in here today, this is going to sound weird, little girl, arise. Little one, my little precious one, and he takes you by the hand. Get that. He takes you by the hand. You know, he could have just spoken the word. Luke chapter 7, the centurion, he says, I just say the word. Your your kid's healed. That happened. Now he goes to the, the ruler's house and he takes the little girl by the hand and he speaks to her in their native tongue. And he says, little girl, arise. Oh, he's so gentle. This is not Jesus, the mighty one, showing off. This is Jesus, the king, who loves us who cares deeply. He wasn't trying to just make a point. He said, don't tell anyone. This was not to like display to the world. That would come. Because the resurrection was to become very, very public. This is Jesus, the mighty one, showing his mighty love. Can we stand together, please? listening to Grace City Portland.